I, I remember as a brand new Christian, I had copied down one of these secret formulas uh, of script of what to say to people. And I, I wrote it down. I had a little Bible and I wrote in the back of it. And I was going to a community college and I picked the most unbelieving looking guy in the room. And I figured he needs Jesus more than anybody in this room. So I'm going to talk to him as soon as class gets out. He had, had a ponytail and a motorcycle and leather jacket, tattoos. And I figured he was going to go smoke so I'd have a chance to at least talk to him for a bit. And sure enough, it did come out. And I went ran up to him and stopped talking to him. And I opened up my Bible and I'm, I'm asking him the questions that go through. I think I got to like question four. The helmet went on. The bike turned on. And, wait, and I just said, I got two more questions. What are you doing? And he's just going. And I, So that kind of, that helped me to see that sometimes those scripts aren't the best. Like I probably would have been able to tell him more if I would have had the opportunity to, to interact and listen to him a little bit rather than just demanding that he listen to me. Uh, so with that, uh, if you're a Christian in the room, then you know what the gospel is. Right? You know what it means to be a Christian because you believe the gospel yourself. So just, just by review of that, the, the gospel is good news. Right? The gospel is good news that God saves Sinners. God created the world, and the, and the world was perfect and good, but we've sinned. We rebel against God, and God in His love and in His mercy sends Jesus to save us from our sins. And Jesus becomes a man who lives the life we should have lived, but couldn't and wouldn't and didn't. And He dies the death we deserve for our sin. And on the third day He rose again, and we believe that truth and God changes us and makes us new. It's the gospel. God takes the one who's a sinner, declares him righteous based on Jesus. And so we want to tell people that. Now, there's lots of different ways to get that message in people's ears. And um, what I wanted to challenge you on this morning is to think about how you speak to people. If you're going to craft a plan for evangelism. And, and I guess... Speaking is also involves listening, which we often don't think of when we when we think about uh, evangelism. It's it's so important to listen well. So if we remember what the objective is of evangelism, what's the objective? Does anybody remember from last night? Objective of evangelism: the good news, right? What was that? Persuasion, right? Definitely aim to persuade. To make disciples, but our job in that can we can we ultimately persuade people in ourselves? Can we actually see anybody converted? We do that, right? No, we can't. So our job is faithfulness with the message, and it's God's job, if we may put it that way, to bring about new life. So doesn't that liberate you? Oh. Well, suddenly I don't have this guy's eternity on my back, right? I don't, I don't have that response. My job is to be faithful and clear and truthful, winsome with the gospel and not, not ultimately to, to bring about the new life. I don't turn the lights on. I just I come and speak. Uh, so with that, there's, I got to say, five ways that we can uh, speak to people. And that truth that God is sovereign liberates us from that crushing weight of them rejecting us, but also it helps us to to 
to think about how we would act and speak. So here's five ways. The first is that we can speak to people knowledgeably. This is a little bit of what we talked about earlier, but thinking about your family, your friends, your neighbors, co-workers, or even unknown people, maybe people you'd like to meet in your community. And, and you think about those, those people. Are they, are they biblically literate? Do, do, they know, do they know the Bible? Increasingly, people don't. So categories of sin and grace, faith, even as we talked about Jesus, those are terms that people don't, they don't have the categories. Uh, maybe 25, 30 years ago, you would have, people would have the right theological furniture in the room, right? They would have sin and faith and grace, but it might just be kind of knocked over, right? So maybe grace meant combination of us working and God working and faith meant doing and believing and Jesus meant something other than what the Bible said, but not completely. They, they had it there. But now it's like the rooms are vacant. So some people you're going to run into when you start talking to people, they're not even going to, oh, grace, what does that mean? Gospel, what, what is the gospel? They think musical genre. They don't, they don't know what you're talking about. So that's why it's incredibly important for us to listen to people and know who we're talking to even Paul did this. If you read Acts chapter 17, the first half of the chapter, he's talking to religious people. And the way that he approaches the religious people is very different than he approaches the pagans in the second half of the chapter. So he reasons with them from the Scriptures in the first half of Acts 17. And then in chapter 17, verse oh, 15 and following, he constructs a worldview for them to see that Jesus is the Christ. But you see the difference. So if you're... If you're talking to somebody that maybe grew up in the Catholic Church, maybe they have some of the theological furniture. Maybe some of it's tipped over. But if you've got somebody over here who's uh, a college student that just moved here from India, they have no idea what you're talking about. You've got to build a whole worldview for them and help them to see it. right? So listening to them and speaking to them uh, knowledgeably. Now that might seem like, boy, I guess I can't. How am I going to talk to them? All you're doing is teaching them that God created the world. God made us. We're accountable to Him. We're made to be worshipers. We've sinned. Jesus died. We have to put our trust in Christ. Right? So, and don't feel the pressure that you got to like close the deal in one meeting. You might be able to have six or ten meetings. I mean, this guy that I meet, I mentioned earlier, Daniel. Um, I, I hope to meet with him. There's 16 chapters in Mark. I hope we have 16 meetings, and 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 then I hope he gets converted during that. It may take some time. So speaking to people knowledgeably, um, let's let's take some, some key terms to help think through as we think through the gospel. Um, sin. If we, we, we want to think about what sin means. And so we have to think about our culture around us. So when we say sin, we have to realize that that word is supposed to make people blush. It's supposed to make people say, oh, that's bad. But sin doesn't make people blush anymore, does it? Sin is actually a marketing strategy. In Omaha, Nebraska, there's a place called Sin Burger. And people love to eat at Sin Burger, eat the Lust Burger, the 
the the sluggard burger. They got all the different deadly sins or whatever, right? And and these hamburgers are huge and people love them. And that's their marketing strategy. Come here and eat your sin sandwich. It's going to be amazing, just like sin. Um, and, and people people go, Sin City. I mean, that's the marketing strategy of Las Vegas, right? So sin is something that is... It's something that makes people laugh and it's advantageous to them. So how do we communicate the biblical concept of sin? How are we going to do that? How would you communicate the biblical concept of sin? Anybody? Failure. That's great. Separation from God. So it's a consequence of the failure. Failure to meet the standard brings that separation. Yeah. Disobedience. Great. Missing the mark. Great. All these are, are great, great terms. So all the, those all give you um, some word pictures too. Alienation or separation, missing the mark, not hitting the target, transgressing, maybe going too far. So so helping helping people to see what sin is. And uh, you said failure, Dave. Failure to meet the standard. There's accountability there. So you're anchoring that in, in creation. Uh, one of the questions I was asked in the break was, can you define depravity? Sometimes I toss words around and, and don't define them. So Great word, depravity, uh, has to do with sin. And so sin, so depravity, don't think of it in terms of what you do as an unbeliever, but think of it in terms of who you are. So depravity isn't just the lying, the stealing, um, the coveting. Depravity is the condition of man apart from Christ that is expressed in terms of rebellion. And what depravity is really getting at is the fact that morally speaking, there's not an ounce of moral ground for us to stand on. Our whole hearts are turned against God. And there's no, the whole island's been blown up. The island of morality has been destroyed. There's nothing to stand on. That doesn't mean that unbelievers don't do good things. We know they do. But it's, it's kind of like being pirates on a pirate ship. Right? The whole ship is wanted. Everybody on the ship is a felon. And if the authorities get to that pirate ship, then everybody is going to jail because they're bad. But in the context of the pirate ship, somebody gets a cut, they bandage them up, take care of them, they pull the shift for them. Somebody's washing the floor, they have order, they have acts of charity and kindness within the context of the pirate ship. So there's relative good happening, but not ultimate good. And that's what we're talking about with sin. It has to do with ultimate good, which is worshiping God. Nobody does anything for God's glory apart from new life. Okay. What about curse? That's another word. How would you explain the biblical concept of the curse? Anybody? The, great. Excellent. The consequences of sin. So how, how broad is that effect of the curse? Universal, right? The whole world is is hit by this. Um, so in in the Midwest, we have tornadoes that come out of nowhere, right? And and so somebody will have a farm, and the whole farm is destroyed, or towns like Joplin, Missouri, just wiped out because of tornadoes. And people want to know, okay, buddy, you tell me God is good and He's sovereign, He's powerful. What is that about? Or what about the tsunami? We had someone that was not yet a Christian who was from the Philippines and just was so hung up on tsunami. How could a good God let this happen? Cancer. Yeah. 
I mean, everybody's affected by that. Somebody has a loved one or a close one that's affected by cancer. How can God allow that? So, so curse is far-reaching. It's God's expression of um, His goodness and His righteousness against sin. So we want to explain it. And then Jesus. How would we explain Jesus? Somebody says to you, well, who is Jesus? What would you say? He's the Son of God. Anybody else? More? Absolutely right. Let's throw some more on there. Savior. King. He's man as well, right? So you want to be able to communicate who Jesus is and what Jesus has done specifically for you. What does it mean? What is faith? So many people see faith as a blind leap into a dark room. It's believing without seeing, but but it's not irrational, right? Right? There's so you're not saying, "Oh, this makes absolutely no sense." So I'm just going to believe there's a floor in that dark room. It's trusting God. That's right, absolutely. So we trust God. We believe based upon what the Bible has said, and we put our faith in Him. How about salvation? How do you communicate what salvation is? What do you think? Anybody in the back third over here? Back half. Restoring what was was lost in the curse, right? So is there anything in um, our world that, that preaches messages of salvation? Are there any salvation stories out there apart from Jesus? Anything? Every single movie. Yeah, absolutely. Name, name something. I'll put you on the spot. Okay. Finding Nemo. Exegete Finding Nemo for us. Help us find Finding Jesus and Finding Nemo. That could be a book. Okay. Oh, that's great. Good job. That's that was pretty good, actually. <laughs> Let's close in prayer, guys. That was good, really good. Uh, is and then what about the advertisements you get? I mean, isn't every single product a, a savior? Take these prescription pills, drugs. Oh, the drugs are always good. Vitamins, uh, the the fitness clubs. Everything is a savior, right? Financial invest, yeah, we'll we'll take care of you. And I used to work in an insurance company. No offense if anyone works in an insurance company, but I I asked my boss one day. I was like, doesn't it kind of seem like we sell policies like they're going to hit the lottery, right? That's like what it is. And he's like, yeah, that's how we get rich. That's what it's about. <laughs> it's like the, sell these these huge policies and, and go. So yeah, anyway, they do a great service, but it the the marketing material for the insurance company was very much sounding like a savior. That's, that was my point. So, anybody else? Other uh, saviors? Boy, that is true. The self-help books. Self-help books. Yeah. So everybody is communicating a, a need, and then they have all these different saviors. They're going to bring it about. So these terms aren't, aren't too difficult. So people put their faith in things, 
they say they're going to work. They uh, believe things are broken, and they, even though they might not say sin, they communicate some of the concepts. And so there's there's a tremendous amount that we can listen for and interact with, so we can be intentional with people. Uh, so I don't know if if this is the way it is here. I would imagine on Sunday morning. You guys don't just open the door and put a sign up and then people just flock. And they say, hey, the church is open. Everybody in Weston, come to Westgate, right? Yeah, right? That's not what happens. People, that's maybe in the 60s and 50s, um, that was more common for that to happen. But the kind of tractional ministry where you, you put an ad in the newspaper or in the um, phone book and you open the doors, you put a sign in the front yard, people would come. It, it's not going to happen. It doesn't happen today, even in uh, the Bible Belt. That's not happening. So God uses churches, but what he actually uses is not so much the attractional aspect, but the aspect where we as Christians go into our communities intentionally. So instead of saying to people, hey, come to us, we're actually saying, hey, we're going to them. And so now as we go, we want to go intentionally. There's some ways that you could do this um, in, in a book, Everyday Church. Tim Chester had a ton of really good ideas, and that's another evangelism book that would be helpful. Uh, so he suggests that if you, you look through your normal life, and he divides it up into a daily routine, a weekly routine, and a monthly routine. And he says, just just think through the daily routine of traveling to work, eating meals, doing chores, walking the dog, playing with children. Think of your weekly routine, grocery shopping, watching TV, movies, exercising, or your monthly routine, getting haircut, gardening, going to the movies, whatever. If you make a list of all those things, you have a really long list. And he says for each category, ask if you could add a community component. So the community component would be, hey, grab a church member to maybe... Maybe somebody lives near you. Maybe you guys are spread out. So maybe it's... um, eating a meal together because it would be maybe not logistical to, to walk the dog or something like that or to, to hang out with the kids. But we're going we're gonna to eat a meal. We're going to spend time together. And then uh, think of a missional component where you would involve an unbeliever. So maybe you're having unbelievers over for dinner or maybe you're going to enjoy a hobby with somebody. Um, you're just you're being intentional, So I'm trying to say. And then a gospel component would be just simply as you go about those opportunities, looking for ways to thoughtfully engage people with the gospel. So in other words, he's saying don't look at your don't look at evangelism as saying, okay, I have a whole list of things I need to do and now I need to put evangelism on the list. But rather look at your whole list of things to do and do them intentionally in light of evangelism. So go to the gym thinking about evangelism. Go to the grocery store thinking about evangelism. Uh, walk the dog praying and thinking about evangelism. So I don't, this probably would be like not a big deal to most people, but I was walking our dog the other day. It's springtime. People are coming out in the neighborhood, and, 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 and I'm walking. I got a couple kids with me going, got the dog, and this guy is cleaning out his garage. And I said to him, I said, hello. He said, hi. And he came and shook my hand. And I'm like, this is great. The guy came out of his garage. He's going to talk to me. And I'm thinking, man, this is an opportunity. He starts talking and said he just moved in the neighborhood, asked where I lived. I told him where I lived. We have the same name, so we're connecting to Eric's talking. 
And then he, he says, you know, it's good to talk with you. Um, keep coming by when the weather gets warm. He, he's like, uh, he starts telling me about all his hobbies and he wants me to, to come by and enjoy some of his hobbies. And this guy over here and this guy and this guy. And we come over and hang out. So I'm totally thinking, that's an opportunity for me to go over there and do it. So that's a dog walk in in first week of March that turns into a, probably an hour-long conversation in April or May that may turn into lunch in June or July. And that's just the intentionality that I think we gotta we got to bring that in um, to just the regular aspect of life, uh, the gospel component. Some aspects, some good, really good advice for in your neighborhood. I don't know if this is my list or his list, but... Um, I think these are helpful things that I've tried to adopt. Uh, go outside of your house in your neighborhood. Utilize porches, driveways, parks, etc. as a place to interact with people. Uh, open up your home to neighbors for a meal. Ask them to come over. Listen, most unbelievers don't get invited over people's houses to eat. It's true. I can count on one hand maybe one finger, how many times I had people that weren't part of my family come to our house for dinner growing up. It never happens. And just think, if you're a Christian, you probably that's part of your normal rhythm, having people over, eat dinner. But if you invite a neighbor over, hey, would you like to come over for dinner? They're going to be like, what? Yeah. That'd be amazing. Um, serve your neighbors, looking for opportunities to serve them. Uh, I think of our neighbor Penny on that, a good opportunity that came up. Perhaps you have things in your neighborhood could happen. We have an opportunity to serve. Uh, Potentially organize an event in your home for one of your hobbies so you're doing something you normally would do. I don't know, hunting, crafts, books, sports. If you're a stay-at-home mom, try to find others in the neighborhood who are home during the day and organize a a play day at a park or a home. That actually happens in our, our neighborhood. Uh, another thing that people tend to like to do is a progressive dinner. You just get a few families together, organize that, they come to the house, we've done that, and they spend time with you and asking you all kinds of questions and visit. Good opportunity. Um, bringing baked goods to neighbors for birthdays or holidays. Knock on the door with cookies. Merry Christmas. Talk with you. I mean, it's you get to know neighbors. Uh, hosting a sports watching party. It, it works. Uh, what about in your workplace? Praying for your coworkers on your way into work? Instead of eating lunch alone at your desk, make a plan to eat with other coworkers. Try to get to know them. Great opportunities to, to talk about the gospel and uh, even have an opportunity to say, you know, I'm, I usually pray before I eat. Would you mind if I prayed at this point? Pray for you, pray for you, your day. Is there anything I could be praying for? Uh, listening to people's side chatter in their lives. Take opportunities to show compassion or joy where appropriate. Going to the same places to eat meals. If you go out to eat, try to go to the same places so they get to know you. Maybe the same barbershop, the same um, convenience store, the same restaurants. We try to get to know the servers and talk with them. If you're in a work environment where it's really competitive, taking the initiative to try to reconcile coworkers who are arguing tends to be a wonderful opportunity to talk about why you're doing that. Uh, Being a pace setter and helping those in the office who are in need. 
And then in your city, praying for your city, going to the same places, try to join in local events, volunteer and serve, if possible, hobby with non-Christians. So this is just intentionality, just trying to, to make the most of it. Again, thinking like a missionary. And then speaking attentively. So, so everybody is talking and there's alerts and there's all kinds of interruptions but if we're speaking to people about the gospel and we're not even, we're just trying to listen and, and hear them, we want to hear their story. And so I've found that the creation, fall, redemption, restoration paradigm is really helpful. That's kind of the way some people think about how the Bible fits together. You have creation, you have fall, sin, you have redemption, God saves us, and you have restoration, everything gets put back together. And if you're if you're listening to people talk, um, most people will talk through those terms. They talk about what's important to them. They speak of the things that they're created to do, right? So they'll speak in creation terms. Oh, I was just born to, 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 to craft. I was just born. I love to cook. I'm more of a family person. I love to make music, right? So they're, they're thinking of, their, of what their identity is. And then they speak of fall. They're talking about what's wrong. What is preventing them from enjoying their purposes of creation? Perhaps it's divorce. Maybe it's a difficult boss. Maybe it's debt. Maybe it's a lack of time. Whatever the problem is that's preventing them from getting what they think they need. And then they'll speak of redemption, of what they've tried to do to overcome those problems. Some people don't talk about that because they're mired in the fall, but some people do. And then they speak of restoration in ways of their vacation or their their new job or their retirement. So I take our neighbor, uh, Penny, the lady I mentioned the other night. So that whole creation, fall, redemption thing came out of thinking with her because she was talking about how get this get this home, finally move out of this area, in the house, everything's good, and then where's the fall? The fall is the husband goes messes up, the house falls apart, house falls apart outside as well, the kids get into trouble, all these issues, and then redemption is that she takes absolute ownership of everything, and she's going to be the savior. She's going to work hard, she's going to fix everything, and one day she'll be able to retire, the house will be fixed, the little grandson will have a better life, and everyone will be thankful for what she's done. She's restored it. Every single day she's out of breath and she's exhausted and she's worn out because she's wearing that load. And it just takes something as simple as Christy, my wife, just saying, you can't bear this alone. God made you. He loves you. He cares for you. Here's, here's what the gospel is. Trust in it. And she's absolutely curious about it. But you could just see the sweat from creation fall redemption, restoration. She can't do it. So listening, hearing those heart cries where people are, it helps us to listen. And then speaking thoughtfully. We listen to their stories. We hear their heart cries. We want to thoughtfully engage them. So now with politics, right? Everybody's discontent with government, right? Everybody, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, but oftentimes, people's discontentment in government um, indicates that they believe that God's not in absolute control. 
So there's a desire to, to see Eden come here and everything to be fixed. So opportunities to talk thoughtfully and engage. Um, and then patiently, knowing that it takes time, knowing that God brings about the growth. So careful with the gospel, but then just thinking and working in a way that knows it, it's going to take time. And you have to listen to people. Oftentimes it's less talking, more listening, and then careful with the gospel. Does that make sense? Questions on, on some of that? I know I'm just kind of throwing a bunch of ideas out here to you. Anybody? Yeah, patiently, thoughtfully, attentively, intentionally, and knowledgeably. So knowledgeably, intentionally, and um, attentively, thoughtfully, and patiently. Yeah. <laughs> Ironies abound. <laughs> There'd probably be another one speak clearly, which would have been my problem. (laughs) Any questions on any of that? Yes, go ahead. Well, was the comedian Jim Gaffigan said, um, how do you make somebody feel uncomfortable? Why don't you just ask him, what do you think about Jesus? And that was his his line, and I thought that was hilarious and true. Uh, So... So, I mean, there's all kinds of things that that I do. I don't want to impose my things on me. But I try to do, like, I have a five-minute rule. So I got the clock going. And that came from when I was working um, in a company and didn't have a whole lot of time with people. So if they're just going to talk about whatever, eventually I want to, I want to talk about Jesus. So I would want to bring up something about the Bible or the gospel or faith in Christ and try to figure out where they where they come from. So... Um, so give me an example. Would give me a scenario, and then we talk through it to make it as helpful as we can. Okay. So let's say easy one. You guys have somebody over for dinner, right? And so uh, you might just didn't. And so you're talking about all kinds of things. You'd be talking about politics, work, family where they grew up, history, all that. Um, and then I would just want to ask them, hey, interesting, do you, do you have a spiritual background? And what's your background? Did you go to church? What do you, what do you believe? And a lot of people will just tell you, and they'll just talk about it. Um, if they say, no, no spiritual background, cold. They say, well, that's interesting. You know, most people I talk to have um, at least some spiritual background you, have you given it much thought? Have you ever read the Bible? And you just ask, and people oh, no. And what usually comes at that point, even the harder people, would be to say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. It's man-made. You can't trust it. Why would I spend time reading that? And now you're off and running. Because you say, well, actually, have you studied that? There's substantial um, evidence to the contrary. Um, you know, And then you're just talking about that. But you want to get to the bottom line of, of Christ. And so you're, you're trying to swing to that. I mean, that's, that's what I, I mean. I would just insert it. It's, there's no easy way. I just say, if you're passionate about Christ and you love him, he's your savior, you're going to bring him up in, in conversation and talk about it. 
the the reason why it's hard is we know that people aren't naturally inclined to receive him. But I've thought through a little formula that seems to work. So there's three possible responses. Either they're a, they're a believer and they're going to be really encouraged that you told them about Jesus. They're going to be an unbeliever and uh, get converted. Or they're going to be an unbeliever and not believe. The fourth option, which is that they're going to assault you physically, is pretty unlikely, and it's only been threatened a few times on me. But that doesn't happen often. So really, it's either they're going to get converted or they're not going to believe. So I think you just you, you just talk to them about it and just insert it in there. I don't Look, there's things you can do like to train yourself, read the newspaper and say, what does this story have to do with the gospel? And then you can you can begin talking through some of those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so they didn't believe. But what I did was I asked them I asked them what they thought. What what do they think about me and people like me? And I felt like they were open to talking at that point and they told me and they were very candid. And then I I asked about their spiritual background. What was their religious background? And and so what I found with this one guy is that his family was actually really religious and his dad did some really bad things. And the church did some really bad things. And he's really bitter and really angry. I don't know how all this plays together, but I know this guy's got a serious gripe with the church. And so I listened to that and I just said, I, I, said, I apologized and said, you know, that's horrible. And I, I, you got to understand that there are bad people everywhere. And then I just, thankfully, we know that the church isn't all about people. It's about Jesus and he's perfect and he saves people. And you know, I'm talking about that. But I did challenge them that the rhetoric coming out of the uh, the gay and lesbian community sounds an awful lot like fundamentalists. Very exclusive, intolerant, in some stages very mean and judgmental. I said, surely you can see that the very thing that you hate over here is, sounds a lot like this. I said, we should be able to have a conversation and um, argue in the old sense about things and still be friends. And they agreed with that. And so we were able to, that kind of gave the, the breathing room. And then we were able to, I was able to go through the gospel and talk about it clearly in a way that they could interact with it. Now, they didn't believe, but I guarantee you, I see that guy, I'm able to pick it right back up again and talk with him. I mean, the, the bridge is open. In fact, he emailed me and told me he appreciated the conversation. So, I think, I think prayer, thinking, and just listening to people and trying to swing a conversation spiritual is it takes work, but um, sometimes blunt is the easiest way. Really, I walked up to a guy at work one time and I said, "I said, listen, Jim, you have you come by every day in my desk and you lean on my desk and you talk to me about stuff and you leave, and I, I've, this has happened for six months and I'm terribly convicted that I haven't told you the most important thing. Can I have five minutes to talk to you? I did, and then he listened. He said, "Man, I'm so I'm glad you actually." cared enough to tell me. I think it's baloney, but I thank you for telling me. <laughs> and so, and we did. Actually, that guy got married and he had a ton of questions later on and we got to talk through. So,
So, the intentionality. That's good. Good question. Yeah, in the back. Yeah. That's a great question. So we have six kids. The oldest is in college, and the second oldest goes part-time to a high school. And so I think that the training ground is earlier on before they're, well, I guess if you have public schools when you're young. But for us, the training ground was those first 10 years of education to build the Christian worldview that they can lean on and understand. Um, but some of this stuff about viewing unbelievers is really important for them to know how to look at people and how to look at Christ. Otherwise, they're they're not going to talk to... I mean, this school is not filled with Christians. My son goes to a high school, and the, I mean, it is it is filled with gay people. He's in, in the orchestra, and so many of those kids are, are homosexual. And, and transgender stuff and all kinds of things. So... He can't go in there just blowing them up with stuff, but he does. Um, he does talk to them about the gospel and interact with them. So I think first off, the right burden and the right tone. Uh, so the burden is for the people and for the gospel, and then the right tone, which is realizing it's going to take time. So how old are the kids? Ten, seven, and four. Well, I think, yeah, because especially like the seven-year-olds, five to seven-year-olds, I mean, they're hilarious because they'll just, whatever they learn in Sunday school, they're going to say, so you're serving Satan and stuff like that's going to come out and it's really interesting. So helping them to, to see, so really building the worldview from there, helping them to understand what the gospel is so that they embrace it themselves by God's grace, and then helping them to see their relationship uh, to the world around them and then hopefully equipping them as they're doing it. So, again, building off the worldview, but then knowing that that's something you regularly emphasize as a family. Maybe praying for classmates, praying for your teacher. So we talk regularly at the table about this person and that person. My son was a waiter at a, a restaurant. He was the only straight male in the restaurant. And so he was being literally harassed by all these people. And, and he stayed there for quite a while from a mission standpoint. He had great gospel conversations with them and do it. But that was dinnertime talk. I mean, we were at the table talking about how to think through this. He read Sam's book, Kevin's book on homosexuality, great books. But he was working through those things. So if you have a dinnertime dynamic or some other time dynamic as a family where you can talk through issues and help train the children to think biblically and think from a gospel-minded standpoint, I think you're you're going you're way down the road of where you need to be, in a good way. And then you're continuing to answer questions as they go. Does that help? Uh, it can be done. I mean, we didn't have like a five-step formula, but I would say Luke, my 16-year-old, is he was showing me a text the other day. The cello player is really upset, and you know, saying all kinds of really sad things. And Luke's saying, "Hey, God's in control. I'll pray for you. Can we talk about this?" And a guy's like, man, seriously? And then, you know, these guys come to the house and he gets to talk with them. So, taking time and uh, trying to build it. Yeah. No. No. I think it's, 
but I would say that ideally, that just shows you the contradiction of a pluralistic society, because it's supposed to be. I mean, that's the. It should be if we're truly pluralists as Americans, then we should be able to say everybody can believe what they want. And we can have debate, but it's not. It's more fundamentalist than most people would would want. And I, I do think, kind of as a backdoor affirmation of Christianity, that this is the one that's always getting kicked. I mean, this is the problem. Um, so no, it's not created, greeted warmly. But see, we tell our kids the gospel is offensive, but you don't have to be offensive. I mean, you're going to take your lumps for the gospel, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. So I think I think you have to know that you know you're reminding your kids you know we're strangers in a, in a strange land, and increasingly so. And so people aren't going to believe it. That doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, it seems to make it more what the Bible would say. Yeah, but I would say that kids tend to be more open to just real conversation than perhaps adults would be. That I have experienced that. Maybe that's an Omaha thing or what. But he's, you know, even even we, our church is right next to a school, a high school, and it's a it's a very diverse school. And they would they'll pepper me with Bible questions, and they want to talk. Uh, they don't come to church. They're not. Christians, but they're far more open to talking than probably their parents would be. So, yeah. Good question. Anybody else? Yes. Right. I I think with so the compassion you feel is good, but at the same time you have there's an answer that goes with that, and that answer is that there's restoration in the gospel. So there's an answer to that. And as Christians, we know that suffering is not pointless, right? So there's no purposeless struggle. And so if even if your friend is an unbeliever and she or he is struggling with um, some type of affliction. It could, you can show them that there is actually an answer to this. It's bigger than this life. There's a, the big picture of of cancer is that it's part of sin, and and this world is broken. But there's one that's putting things back together, and that can not you may not be healed on earth. Yes. Right. And I think you're you're onto it, and and so that type of a conversation has to be very 
very careful because it's it's loaded with a lot there. And so I would try to help people because this is the conversation we've had a lot of times is try to help people to understand what what the Bible means by loving and good because those terms, you know, they assume that we deserve good things, good things to happen to us. So it, it just completely goes over that. I mean, just as an aside, I would not say this to somebody that's in, in struggling on their deathbed. But I've heard R.C. Sproul say before, um, why do good things happen to, to bad people? Or bad things happen to good people? And he said that's only happened once. And he volunteered for it. Talking about Jesus. And so just saying that the, the reality is there's only been one good person and his name was Jesus. We're actually all bad. But there's a way for bad people to be made good. And that's through the gospel. And so what you're struggling with and what you're crying out in terms of injustice and saying this is really hard, actually God knows that. He identifies with that and he knows it's bad and he enters into that. And he saves us from that through Jesus. So Jesus identifies with our suffering by becoming a man and delivering us from it. So that's a huge, I mean, the empathy and sympathy of Christ in the incarnation is, is big for people, I think, that are suffering in that way. But I would acknowledge the tension, like this is, this is really hard. It's heavy. Yeah, I mean, weep with those who weep. I would cry and if, if you're moved to cry and hug them and take time. Yeah, it is hard. Other ones, I think we've got a break coming up. Any other thoughts on that before we go ahead? It's a great question. I've neglected to talk about testimonies at all. Uh, I think testimonies are really helpful to talk through, to kind of put a, a, a context of how God used the gospel in your life. But it can't be the only thing we say because the gospel is the history of what Jesus did for us on the cross, life, death, resurrection. Testimony is the reception of that truth. So I think it's really helpful. But Joseph, we just don't want to neglect the actual gospel and just by giving our story. So our stories are good, but we have to give Jesus' story as the as the weight of it. So not either or, but um, gospel and testimony are good. So it's really helpful. Good. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. Yeah, we'll do a prayer on the next one. Prayer is, I think, so important on evangelism. So let's do that next. There we go.